0: Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere, it is in the center of everywhere.
1: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 8 of the Center of Everywhere podcast. I'm Marnie Warner, the Vice President of Research at the Center for Rural Policy and Development. We are a private, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization based in rural Minnesota, where we are dedicated to providing data-driven research on rural issues to help our policymakers make more informed decisions affecting the rural people and places of our state. So today, we're going to talk about mental health, and more specifically, the mental health workforce shortage, which is the subject of a report the Center has just released with the Center for Rural Behavioral Health at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Joining me today is the Center for Rural Behavioral Health's director, Thad Schunkweiler, and fellow researcher, Dr. Tracy Rutherford-Self. They co-authored with me on our report, Identifying Bottlenecks and Roadblocks in the Rural Mental Health Career Pipeline, which looks at why we have this worker shortage in the mental health field and what we could do about it. So, Thad, welcome, and why this report and why now?
0: Thanks so much for having me, Marnie. Uh, Yeah, I'm Thad Schunkwater, the uh, Director of the Center for Rural Behavioral Health whose mission is to ensure access to behavioral health care, uh, regardless of your zip code in Minnesota. And uh, if you're new to the topic of the behavioral health workforce, um, I'll just kind of summarize it in a sentence. the need for mental health services is outpacing the number of providers who can provide it. And that's been a problem that's been going on for at least a decade, um, but really was exacerbated through COVID-19 when the psychological impacts of the pandemic really pushed the mental well-being of Minnesotans and, and Americans as a whole and across this across the planet um, into uncharted territories. And so the, the why for this report, from my perspective, um, is that the gap of services is not geographically equitable. So we know we have this gap between who can provide care and who needs care. But when you think about where those care providers are, they are highly concentrated in the seven-county metro area. And so when you think about accessing services uh, in greater Minnesota, there is a a much greater problem uh, or challenge in accessing those care in in that care and so the purpose or the why for this report is to understand why we know the numbers we know the numbers through Minnesota Department of uh, health workforce reports we know there's not enough providers in rural minnesota But what those reports leave out is the why. Why are we having challenges in recruiting and retaining and sustaining the behavioral health workforce in rural Minnesota? And I I thought and think that this report kind of uncovered some of those stones while at the same time proposing some practical and innovative policy solutions to kind of help us overcome that. So yeah, no, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, great. So do you want to tell us about the Center for Rural Behavioral Health because it is something relatively new?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking. So we were officially established the Center for Rural Behavioral Health in January of 2022. So we just celebrated uh, our year anniversary of being an official uh, academic research center as part of Minnesota State University, Mankato. And the idea for the center was really born out of the things that I just alluded to, the fact that the treatment gap in greater Minnesota uh, is worse than it is in the metro area. And so me and my team here at MSU uh, said, let's let's focus on this. Let's, let's try to solve this issue and ensure that every Minnesotan can access behavioral health care and thus where the center came from. The objectives of the center uh, are really three parts. There are just, I'll briefly kind of overview them. And so we are an academic research center. So our chief priority is to work on research, much like the report we did in collaboration with your team, Marnie, uh, that helps us understand this issue, but also helps us move forward. I'm tired of writing papers and tired of doing work that talks about how bad everything is. I feel like we are inundated with problems and rare do we come up with solutions? And so the research of the Center for Rural Behavioral Health is focused on solutions. How do we address this issue and move it forward? And so we have a number of, uh, we have 26 affiliated faculty who have committed part of their scholarly work Uh, to helping us solve that issue and and doing that research that helps us move forward. In addition to research, we do workforce development um, where we try to recruit students into the behavioral health pipeline. We do that through a program called the Behavioral Health Career Exploration Program, where we go into local and rural high schools to talk about the mental health career pathway as a way to encourage students to consider that as they're considering their career uh, and, and their college choices. The final kind of branch of what it is that we do is we do continuing education. And so within the clinical community uh, for licensed people like myself, every year uh, or every reporting period, we have to tell our licensed board how many hours of continuing education that we've obtained. Uh, and we each licensing board sets that number, but there is a challenge in obtaining those training hours, particularly in rural and outstate Minnesota. And so part of our mission is to put on those trainings with a specific intention to serve the clinicians in rural and greater Minnesota. So collectively those objectives, our goal is to help us grow the behavioral health workforce who call rural Minnesota home and practice in those communities, because if we're not intentional about solving this issue, it's not going to get better on its own. In fact, it's going to get considerably worse. So this report was a great way to kind of dive headfirst in with a a group like yours that has great credibility and legitimacy. And uh, we were just so thrilled to be able to collaborate on uh, on this subject and topic with you.
1: Well, yeah, and the center is, it's kind of unique. In the nation is it isn't it is is there anything else like it out
0: there yeah so every state has a federally funded office of rural health care that looks at health care globally but uh, there isn't another academic research center in the nation that exclusively looks at rural behavioral health workforce issues um, and so even though we are brand new we are really leading the charge on this issue and at a time in which mental health care has never been more important or or more needed uh, in, in the history uh, that I can remember. And so we we are proud of that fact to be able to kind of lead the charge in that space uh, here at and, and Little Mankato, Minnesota.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Tracy, you are a research fellow, I think it is, at the Center. And so why don't you Tell us about yourself and your role at MSU and and what you're doing with the center.
2: So I'm an affiliated faculty member, but I'm certainly I think when we look at the subgrouping for the center, research is my primary area of interest. So I've been at MSU now for almost three years, and I was delighted to find that and the things that he's working on, because when I was looking at programs to go to and when I was looking at, all right, where do I want to have my academic career? There was another program that actually had a focus on rural behavioral health, but I decided that MSU really was just a better fit for me. Uh, in addition to doing research around rural mental health, I've been in the upper Midwest now for about 20 years, but 16 of those was spent as a rural mental health clinician in small communities and working with that population. So When I first came to MSU, I wasn't aware that there was another interested party or, and in fact, it turns out many interested parties across the university. So I was delighted to find that connection and be able to participate in this in a much more global fashion than I might have in other areas. So having that common interest is really important to me because as that has illuminated for us, there's a lot of challenges to being a rural mental health clinician, in addition to being someone who receives services from rural mental health providers. So I don't think that this work can in any way be underscored enough, because simply, we don't have enough clinicians, as that is so aptly pointed out. And of the clinicians we have, like one of the things I really appreciate, in addition to the research component, is the continuing education. Rural mental health providers often have difficulty obtaining enough CEUs, in part because they're just not able to get them in a way that fits within their schedule and frankly within their budget. They're often single practice solo proprietors for their particular site. And when that happens, you just can't get through enough CEUs because you don't have the opportunity to do it. So I think having that option with the center really provides a new level for our clinicians.
1: Yeah, and besides teaching, you've had experience with operating your own clinic. Yes. So when I first
2: started my career, I actually worked at a very small rural college counseling campus, and for the past 12 years, I've owned my own private practice in a community of about 2,500 people. So I've done nothing but rural mental health for a number of years now, and the needs have never dropped. I've never had a point to where I didn't have a waiting list, and Part of that is because I'm in a smaller area, and in my county, I think there are currently four behavioral health practitioners for an entire county of a, again, rural county. So probably about thirty thousand people total in the context of the county, and maybe not that many. But when we look at those numbers, I mean, think about it: four people serving twenty-five to thirty thousand people. That's not enough. It's not sufficient. So a lot of members in our community have to either then travel to an area with more providers, which is often difficult because they often don't have access to transportation, or they have to wait for our waiting list to drop enough that they can come in and see a local provider. So again, we've got this issue of access. We don't have enough clinicians to provide for the access and the needs in the context of our community. And to echo what that said, particularly since covid COVID really changed the dynamic for practitioners in so many ways. So we've got higher demand than I've ever seen in the last 12 years I've owned a private practice. The demand is substantial and still not enough practitioners in the community. And instead of gaining practitioners in communities, As that is pointed out, we're losing them. And COVID was one of the big things that caused a loss. So individuals who may be nearing retirement age decided during COVID, it may not be worth staying in practice at this point. So they left creating substantial gaps in our workforce in rural areas.
1: Yeah. So your part of the research, Tracy, was you surveyed 15 programs across the state that train people to become independently licensed mental health care providers. And you asked them about the barriers to getting more students into their programs. So what did you find out from them?
2: Yeah, so when we looked at some of the barriers, one of the ones that stood out most dramatically was the fact that we simply have capacity issues in each of our programs. Our programs are bound by accreditation. So in order to meet accreditation standards, you can only admit so many students per faculty. That faculty to student ratio really drives the number of students we're allowed to accept. And what programs were saying is, look, we simply don't have enough faculty to take on more students than we currently have. We have plenty of qualified students. In fact, I can tell you we're in our own admission process right now. And part of the conversation I have with students is these are the number of slots we have. It doesn't mean you're not qualified. It means we can't admit more than this particular number. That's our bottom number. And because of that, there are lots of people who might enter the field, but are otherwise, unfortunately, turned away because programs simply can't admit them because of that faculty to student ratio. So if we had more faculty, ultimately we could admit more students. And that's definitely one of the concerns. Obviously, there are other concerns like getting them placements. Uh, That'll talk more about this. But when we look at what our programs were saying, they're saying, look, it's a big burden on sites. And so we don't always find enough sites that are able to take students even when we have them. Supervision is a big burden on sites. So we also have to consider that aspect as well and how that impacts programs and their ability to take on students.
1: Yeah. And so it all kind of comes down to money, doesn't it? The universities and colleges need more money to hire more faculty, the, the clinics that might be willing to offer training slots to students um, can't afford it <laughs> because they're not getting paid to train the students. Um, so yeah, so Thad, you interviewed a number of providers around greater Minnesota um, just to find out the issues that they're dealing with and what did you learn from them?
0: Yeah, so I had the, the privilege, and it's quite fun to be able to do that qualitative piece of really asking the why, and not from some academic ivory tower and hypothesizing about what the issues are, but really boots on the ground, what are the barriers in some of the more rural places in Minnesota to hiring, you know, clinicians and really trying to get a sense of what people on the ground are seeing with this. And, and I had the opportunity to interview a CEO of a community mental health center up in Virginia, Minnesota, all the way to a sole proprietor and owner uh, in the, the heart of Watanwan County, Medelia, Minnesota. And so through those conversations, a couple of really important themes I believed emerged, particularly for those more clinic operations. And I want to just quote something straight from the, the report that stood out to me and still still stands out to me when I think about this project. I was interviewing a, a, a clinic, a community mental health clinic in Grand Rapids. And their director of human resources, I, I directly asked her, I said, you know, what is the challenge in getting people hired to work in your clinic? And, and she said, the challenge we face here uh, is the pool of candidates we can choose from. And then she went on to say, which is often a pool of no one. So the issue they have is literally no one is applying for these jobs that can remain vacant for months, and in some cases, years. And what that demonstrates is that that doesn't mean that there aren't people who need to be served, but quite the opposite, where if they're unable to fill a clinical slot, that means there are people having to wait longer to get in and, and get these services. So really the, the the kind of the big theme in some of these more rural and isolated areas is that they that they couldn't attract people to move to their communities and practice at their clinics. Some of the things to to kind of pivot to some of the things that did work for these clinics to not keep it all doom and gloom was the number one recruitment tool that these clinics had was the internship experience. And so uh, just briefly, if you're unfamiliar with kind of the training process of mental health clinicians, is that during their training, during their graduate school education, uh, they'll do an internship, which isn't unique to healthcare, but it's uh, within healthcare, our students are required, or mental healthcare, our students are required to complete a 400, 600, 800 hour clinical training experience in the field. And so the clinics, when they talk about their successes, what they would mention is that if they could get an intern to come and intern within their clinic, the chances of them staying as an employee were much greater. I dug into that question a little bit more and said, well, who who are these interns then? How can you get an intern to move to Virginia, Minnesota, uh, but not a fully licensed clinician? And and what stood out to me then was that these interns often had a connection to that community already either that's where they're from and they're going home or their fam like part of their family has been from there or there's something that they are connected to that has them intern in those communities and so it started becoming pretty clear that if we want to grow the pipeline the workforce in rural minnesota We have to create that pipeline of students in the internship process to get them to practicing and being comfortable in those communities, and then hopefully have them stay on as licensed clinicians.
1: So what would you, either of you, what what would you say are maybe the most significant findings in, in your research?
2: Well, again, I think it kind of comes back to what you were saying before, Marnie, is that there isn't sufficient funding for us to meet the current need and even demand from students. So again, as we look at that capacity issue, if we had increased financial support to hire more faculty, we could bring in more students. And I look at that even from the internship practicum issue as well. So one of the things that's a big driver for our students currently is when they can go to a site that offers some sort of stipend. They're highly competitive if we can have a stipend. So if we can provide stipends to rural serving Uh, providers, then that would allow for them to do more supervision. If you're a solo practitioner, as Thad's mentioning, was one of our participants, it's really hard for you to give up time seeing clients from a financial perspective in order to be able to provide the necessary supervision. It is an intensive year-long process for our particular students. Some programs, it's a spring and summer, but that's still an intensive time period. So what we have to be able to do is provide some sort of way to incentivize sites to be able to literally afford to take on some of our students and then have them return. So I think that when we look at that financial piece, that really is a big component of what's necessary to really funnel more providers to those rural communities. Dad, what thoughts do you have?
0: Yeah, if I could just piggyback on that, you know, there's a lot of conversation when we think about state uh, politics and budgets and where money is spent, and and there is seems to be a, a large appetite for spending on mental health, because I think people are recognizing the important role that it plays in communities and in families, and so there are lots of conversations about paying for mental health services, but one of the conversations that is missing is who is going to provide those services, and so when we think about paying for care, we can't forget that we also need to make sure that the workforce is there, because it doesn't matter how much money you have to pay for services if there isn't a service provider. And so I think to echo kind of what Tracy was talking about is investing in those training opportunities and institutions. Furthermore, one of the things that clearly stood out to me from an incentive to get people to relocate and practice in rural Minnesota was offering to pay for their graduate education on the front end. Currently in Minnesota, we have a student loan forgiveness program. If you you take on those student loans and then go and work in rural Minnesota at the state level, there is some funding to then pay back those student loans. But we we heard pretty much through all of our interviews, a better model would be take the money that you promised to students on the back end and give it to them on the front end to reduce those barriers and to incentivize this track. And so instead of telling a student, if you take on all of this debt, and if you win the race to independent licensure, we'll then give you some money to pay it back. If we could simply say, let's take that same amount of money we appropriate for loan forgiveness and make it tuition assistance on the front end, all of my interviewees said that is a is a pathway to encouraging people to from those rural communities to pursue graduate education and come back to their communities and serve them in that way. So if I could pinpoint a couple of just key takeaways, that's a practical solution. It is a solution that um, isn't asking for the moon. It isn't asking for things that aren't attainable. It's simply just saying, let's shift the way we think about some things to incentivize this career pathway.
1: Yeah, and I guess that was the thing that struck me was um, I didn't before we started this I didn't fully understand the entire educational pathway to become an independently licensed mental health care provider and to get through it it's almost a hunger games kind of scenario you have to pay 25 to fifty thousand dollars in tuition for the two-year program you go through the practicum and internships not paid but still doing full-time coursework so it's not like you can just go out and you know get a job at Aldi or something and and work and work in the evenings and then after graduation you have to work another two years until you can be fully independently licensed but in those two years you're not getting paid at the full rate uh, because you are not independently licensed yet so you're basically getting paid a low payment amount. And you, if you took student loans, you have student loans to pay off. If you, you know, otherwise you just still have to live on this. And then it's like, then if you survive to the end, then, you know.
0: Then you can make sixty.
1: Yeah, (laughs) then you get the brass ring, you know, but it's kind of like, why are we making this so difficult for students? Especially students of modest means, and especially nowadays when, Um, Students are really questioning the wisdom of student loans, and they're looking at this and going, I'm going to have to take out these huge student loans when I could go over to this master's degree program in a different like in tech or some kind of STEM thing and get paid to go to school. And so it's it it seems like the um, incentives are need to be changed. They don't match the needs nowadays.
0: Yeah, that training model isn't unique to mental health care, right? So if you think about medicine, that's the same model. You go to med school, and then once you graduate, that you have to do your residency, and that can span several years, uh, where you're kind of working underneath someone. The main difference is once you finish residency, you're making a living that allows you to quickly pay back the debt that you may have had to incur uh, to, to get to that point. And so the incentive at the end of that is is a, a much bigger bigger pot of gold at the end of the rainbow than it is in within mental health care. And so I think it ultimately boils down to if we value something, the incentive needs to be there to do it. And I have not met anyone, whether in this project or anywhere, that says mental health isn't important. But yet when we financially look at it, we don't treat it as as important as any other health care discipline or in many instances, other just career disciplines. And so it's kind of looked at as an afterthought. And I don't think, however, I don't want listeners to confuse that mental health people are greedy and we need to make more money. Because I think that's often a non-starter when you think about just money will solve things. I think people are brought to this career pathway for more than money, right? Uh, my students often I, I tell them if if you're looking to get rich, the College of Business is two you know two buildings over. Uh, but if you want to help people and change lives, then you're in the right spot. Um, and so you know it's it's that combination of how do we value people through financial means to make this Hunger Games worth it, at the same time making sure that we have the right people in these positions to do these jobs.
1: Exactly, Tracy. Anything you wanted to add on that?
2: I think when I just think back to what we're asking mental health clinicians to do, the reality is there's a heavy burden on mental health practitioners to be in a room and be present with some of the most difficult aspects of our society and We hear all the time, oh, we need better mental health care. But again, to echo what you both said, we just aren't valuing it at the same way from a financial aspect. When students come in and they recognize I can get a degree in this program and make less than people who are making without any degree. It is a tough sell because they're. It's very valued by them. They enjoy it. They really want to give back. But there is a reality that there's a high burnout rate and is the risk really worth it for them? Many people end up leaving the field because they simply can't support themselves from that. I have to meet this client need. I have to have so many clients in order to meet the financial aspect. And that can be difficult because they're having to see such a high burden of clients.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Cool. One yeah. of our the, one of the uh, interviewees made a, a very similar comment that if we don't change the financial mechanism and how we pay mental health professionals, we're going to continue to see this downward trend. And so mm-hmm. this issue is not just going to remedy itself. Um, and so, again, it goes back to if this is important or as important as we say it is, then we need to make sure that we're, we're supporting it with the same level of importance.
1: Right, because like you said, it's not like Mm -hmm. mental health care providers are greedy. They are special people who really want to help, but there is a limit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yeah, so if if there's a way that the incentives can be changed to help people make it through with maybe one less stressor Mm -hmm. in their lives.
2: Right. And, And just to be comparable with other health professionals who are at the same educational level. Because as that kind of alluded to, the reality is we go through a very strenuous process to become a fully independently licensed mental health counselor. And it's comparable to other health professionals, but the pay is nowhere close to being comparable. And we're literally saving lives in many cases. We're looking at clients who are suicidal or who may be homicidal. And there's a high value that I think society places on that. But the pay scale doesn't reflect it.
1: Yeah, and if anybody doesn't think this is a big deal, um, they should take a look at the suicide rates mm-hmm. and the, those those statistics from 2000 through 2020, and especially in rural areas. When I broke it out by geography, it was quite apparent that there was a a definite problem in rural Minnesota and the rates are higher and they were going up faster. And so, yes, it's pretty hard to argue that there isn't a there isn't a need for more providers right now.
0: Yeah, when you think about life expectancy of Americans uh, trending downward, it's uh, the rest of the world is looking at us like, what's going on over there? But the deaths of despair, whether it be suicide, drug overdose, cirrhosis of the liver, the rates of those in our country, which are all directly related to emotional well being um i mean it paints a it paints a grim picture so it is it's a conversation that is well overdue um and just so it's it's it was just i was so glad to be able to write, help write a report that kind of sh- shone a light or shined the light on the issue of just not having enough of us if we're serious about meeting the demand
1: someone asked me not that long ago it you know it takes Four or five years for a person to become fully licensed, you know, to be able to work with people. What can we do right now? Well, I
2: I mean, I think one of the parts that I would think is start attracting more providers to rural communities. So obviously that's right. When I have students coming into our program who have an interest in rural mental health, it's because they're coming from a rural community and they see that. But it's hard to get people who don't have that rural mental health background, that rural experience to go into those communities. But if we can incentivize that, if we can do something a little bit more to attract people into those communities, instead of a, oh, well, I'm going to go to the cities because the city offers some X, Y, and Z kinds of things. But if we can incentivize that with, again, more upfront, instead of having to have clinicians wait the two years in Minnesota to become fully licensed and then, get their payout from any student loan programs. If we could do that up front before they get fully licensed people who are coming out of the pipeline now, I think that would help to front load some of that in the immediate.
0: Yeah, if I could add to that, um, I think that is exactly what needs to happen right now to get to kind of solve that rural treatment gap. When I think about the treatment gap more globally, um, we have a a a hidden stash of people who are eligible to serve in these roles they're just not. And so it kind of segues into what the Center for Rural Behavioral Health's next research uh, paper is going to be on is that we know only half of the students or approximately half of the students who graduate from licensed eligible programs go on to get independent licensure. And so we need to understand why the other half doesn't. Um, and there's a lot of hypothesis in the state around what those barriers are. But we want to engage in that research report that really spells out how do we get this other half, You know, whether it's the entirety of that other half or just another quarter of those students who have done the hard work of going to school, doing their internship, across that finish line for independent licensure. And so to answer your question, Marnie, of how can we do something sooner? Because it does take, and I I hate to be even more doom and gloom than what Kelly said, but it takes closer to eight years from start to finish to get someone independently licensed from completing their four-year undergrad, two years of graduate school, two years of supervised practice to be independently licensed. We need to figure out when we do graduate someone, what prevents them from practicing? What prevents them from getting their license and try to develop some solutions to that? So no magic uh, wand or bullet to solving any of this, but I'll tell you what, this report was a great first step because without this first step, there's not a second step and there's not a third step. So, uh, so yeah, this was awesome.
1: Absolutely. Um, anything else that you guys wanna comment on?
0: you know i think just from my perspective um you know our goal so we talked about the why but my goal at least from the the from the center for rural behavioral health perspective uh with this report is is twofold is one to to engage in conversation and to bring awareness to the problem i think Uh, The first step in solving any problem is fully understanding it. And to be able to contribute to the understanding of this issue, I think, is important. And so that's goal one, is to be able to help more people understand this issue. People listening to this podcast who are like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Hopefully now at least have some awareness to this this gap that's going on in mental health care services. And the second goal with this is to enact action, is to then hopefully prompt those individuals who are tasked with creating policy and dividing budgets and helping make decisions about the future of the state, uh, in our communities can then act on this information. And so, um, I, I think we've, we've given those policymakers something to think about and we've given them some real world and practical ways in which we can make small changes. And in some cases, big changes, uh, but to, to address this issue. So, uh, time will tell whether it makes a difference or not, but, uh, We have to we had to do our part in telling the story and proposing some some solutions.
1: Great. Tracy, any last words?
2: I think, again, just to sum up where we've been, the need for rural mental health providers is dire. And we are at a critical point where we really have to infuse more providers into those communities, or we will see rates of mental health issues escalate exponentially. And that can't be overstated. We really are at a point where this is going to become a crisis issue if we don't act now.
1: Well, great. Well, this has been an excellent conversation. And I just want to thank you both again for, you know, bringing this project to us and partnering with us on this. This, is, this was a, a really good report and we're we're all very proud of it. So uh, I just want to recommend that people go to our website at ruralmn.org and read the report, and they can also watch the webinar that we did uh, a couple weeks ago with Thad and Tracy and uh, a couple other practitioners in the state. And uh, Thad and Tracy, thank you so much for being on.
0: Yeah. Thank you thank so you. much Marnie, for inviting us to participate. And uh, so listeners know Marnie is a, a, a part of our advisory board and helps kind of create the, the research agenda for the center. And so I want to publicly thank Marnie for that as well. Great. Thank you.
2: Thank you both. I really appreciate the collaboration that we were able to work on together to really improve this area.
0: You've been listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere.